What did you have for breakfast today? Well, today I went into the city to listen to Philip Freer had one of his conversations at the edge, so I went back past the George Street Cafe in East Melbourne and I had a cappuccino and a mushroom omelette. Uncommon, the podcast that helps you build your knowledge, skills, and mindset through interviews with unique individuals. My name is Jordan Michaelides, and I'm your host. To learn more about our array of guests, just head to neural.com slash podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Neural Media. Neural Media was born to help you create effortless and affordable content for your business. When two listeners of the podcast reached out to us about creating content, we knew we had the opportunity to create something that could really help our audience. Our service will take away your stress of having to deal with freelancers, creating and managing their briefs, reviewing content creation, pushing distribution, and much, much more. This allows you to focus on teaching and building an audience over a long period of time, saving time and money with a quality service that doesn't gouge you like an agency. With Neural Media, you can go from idea to brief in under 15 minutes. Lauren and I will always aim to keep this content as free as possible. We spend countless hours creating each episode, researching, recording, and then editing, as well as many, many dollars invested in it. If you personally know someone in your network who could benefit from creating content for the business or work, send them our way to neural.com slash media. You can learn a little bit more about creating content and the benefits of it by listening to our How to Create Content series, which is available at the bottom of neural.com slash media. Listeners to this podcast can take advantage of our special 10% discount by using the promo code UNCOMMON in capitals. In this episode, I have for you Bernard Wilhan. Bernard is a retired business executive whose career spans multiple continents across mining, resources, and renewables. His work in Latin America and Australian relations has been recognized with scholarships named in his honor at the prestigious Australian National University and as a member, or membership rather, to the Order of Australia. He served in an incredible array of positions that makes my life, frankly, look like child's play. Bernard has served as Chairman of Pacific Hydro and the Council of Australian Latin American Relations. He served as President of Shell Venezuela and directorships that have included Transfield, Woodside and Caroon Gas. After I interview each guest, I always want to know from them that if they could just pick one guest, just one guest to be on the podcast, who would it be? And when I asked Phil Riven this question, he said Bernard's name in a heartbeat. And I always take Phil's advice. Bernard is wise, kind, and full of brilliant stories from an individual who has clearly taken his fair share of responsibility through life. This was an enjoyable episode in which we covered earliest memories, lessons learned from his parents, family, and wife, the hunter-gatherer shift and indigenous culture in Australia. We then got into his time at Shell, working as an industrial chemist all the way up to president uh, in Venezuela. 
We then got into Venezuela, dictatorships, economy and politics, Pacific Hydro and renewables, Australia and Latin American relations, and then Jordan Peterson to finish things off. I think this would be a very, very good episode for anyone wanting to learn about leadership, management and business in the energy and mining space with an industry icon. If you enjoyed this episode, check out my chat with Phil Riven. Obviously, Phil introduced Bernard and I, uh, but it was episode 34 where we spoke about economics, business, and a bit of leadership as well. Some fascinating stories there. And Jeff Kennett, episode 59, Leadership and Politics, always a good one to listen to. If you want the show notes, just head to our index at neural.com slash podcast. That's N-E-U-R-A-L-L-E dot com slash podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, do subscribe on your podcast app. We'd really appreciate it. Or maybe consider sharing with one of your friends over social media or messaging. I think anyone who really enjoys stories from industry icons would love this. So if you have that friend of mine, do consider it. Thank you so much for listening as always to our regulars. Thanks for coming back and our newbies. Thanks for giving us a chance. You never have to come back each week or give us a chance really. And it's just such a pleasure when we have people reach out to us and make contact or, you know, just comment across social media. So thank you so much as always. But without my ramblings, I want to get into the show. So I hope you all enjoy this conversation with the jovial Bernard Wheelahan. We're live. Bernard, thank you very much for joining me on this lovely Wednesday afternoon in Melbourne. Thank you. Uh, first question for you. When I was speaking to Phil, he told me to ask you where and how did you learn to drive a car? <laughs> yeah, trust Phil. Uh, I learned in New South Wales. Phil and I were both New South Horsemen and we both went to the University of New South Wales. Okay. And 60 years ago this year, we rocked up there together and uh, Phil was a preferred citizen. He was one of the... Uh, one of the uh, superstar, big man on campus, even really. Yeah. How so? Oh, just personality, and <laughs> networks, and family background, and all that. Had a very beautiful twin sister that made him very popular. I remember. <laughs> anyway, uh, he had a car, which was uh, you know the envy of all of us who didn't. And he and I went on a a conference together with uh, a group of students to the University of New England. And uh, on the way, the way back, he gave me a drive of his car. Yeah, and this is a Morris Minor. Morris Minor, yeah, <laughs> which was pretty spunky in those days. And uh, anyway, I still remember to this day. He gave me a lesson which I've never forgotten. He said, "Bernard, you don't slow down for corners; you accelerate into them," which is exactly right, of course. And nothing irritates me more, even to this day, than driving along a curvy road with someone in front of me who insists on bracing for every curve. It's really <laughs> annoying. So I can thank Phil for my first lesson. That's okay. it. And did you get the uh, the license from there? Uh, not from that particular lesson, but I did get the license very very readily. Okay. I found it the daunting experience. The the physical and uh, men mental coordination of a driving a manual manual motor car. I yeah, found it's it tough. Very, very difficult. I mean, the process of getting a license nowadays is intense. I remember when I was doing it, so I was 18 in 2008, mm. and that would be when I was going for my license. So early 2009, I think, is when I got my license, maybe February. 
And uh, that was just at the point where they were cutting off and telling people you had to do 120 hours, I think, yeah. and all these other yeah. components as well. Um, mm. And I only did 65 hours, did I really? think. Um, yeah. But even then, I know if you go back two generations from that, people would do probably half that. Well, I've heard of worst cases. My wife uh, lived in a country town in New South Wales. Right. And... Uh, her father took her down to the police station when she wanted the licence and the sergeant said, can she drive? And he said, no, but I won't let her out until she can. <laughs> so he wrote out the licence on the spot. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> Bit lax back then. <laughs> they were the days. They were the days, yeah. Um, what's the earliest memory of your childhood? Uh it was walking on my father's shoulders through long grass in the police paddock at the police station at Kurawatha in okay. New South Wales. Where's Kurawatha? Uh, near Grenfell. Okay. Uh, it's in fruit-going country, plums and, and prunes. and. Are we talking northwest, east, south of uh, Sydney? South of the southwest of the city. Southwest of the mm, city. Mm, okay. Mm. It was one of many police stations that my family lived in. My father was a mounted policeman. Which meant he rode a horse to work. Right. Uh, I dine out on the story that we moved to many one-horse towns, and I knew they were one-horse towns because my father was on it. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, and and it had a. They all had a police paddock. Uh, police paddock. Yeah, which was designed to contain stolen or lost cattle, wow. you know, or uh, rustle cattle, and um, it was indeed working walking through that police paddock in. Kurawatha that I remember very clearly. I would love to have an image of that or to be back then to see that, what, what yeah. life was like back yeah. then. Yeah, The police station's still there. I've photographed it quite recently. And you've gone back, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, when I was speaking to your wife, she spoke about your childhood. You grew up in, as you said, a family. Your father was uh, a country policeman. Mm. I think you're one of seven children. Correct, number six. six of seven, yeah. And your father... An interesting point she noted was he left school at 12 and actually educated himself by reading the paper. He did. Yeah. He did indeed, yeah. He used to read it at night with the Sydney Morning Herald in a dictionary. I'm really? Yeah. Wow. And he, he had a wonderful command of the English language by the time I remember him. Well, I would say that if he was doing that, he'd probably have a better understanding of how to use language than we do. I mean, growing up in high school, a lot of the stuff you do Mm. Is is you no longer focus on grammar as much as analysis. Exactly. So yeah. you you take books and you analyze the books and you never really build your vocabulary mm. and and those sort of components of using the English language. He was he was fastidious with the use of language and he was a masterful speller. He used to win spelling competitions against the university in Armadale. That's right. And uh, he was also a, a beautiful writer. Copperplate writing in his police records was quite pretty to look at. You know? Right. Is there a particular lesson that you hold or maybe a principle that you hold with you today that was taught to you by either your mother or father? Yeah, value education. And why is that? Well, as you observe, he was self-educated and, and successful with that. And he encouraged um, us, particularly the youngest of us, myself and my younger brother, because we were at the end of the uh, yeah, yeah. the long family, and we we could be sustained for longer periods of education. And it was with his encouragement that 
my brother and I uh, got to university and that transformed our lives forever. Right. And our children and our grandchildren. Yeah. I remember there was a point at some uh, somewhere there where I think your parents were in a bit of financial strain and they were considering taking you out of school and I think that the school convinced them in a way that, you know, they you should definitely pursue yeah. this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All my older siblings left school at 15. Did they? Yeah. Yeah, and they were... They were they were a gifted family, in my view. They were all very bright and very clever, and they could all have had very successful professional careers had they had the opportunities that my brother, younger brother and I did. Yeah. What did your younger brother end up doing? He uh, just retired after 50 years at the bar in New South Wales. Okay. Yeah. So as a lawyer? Lawyer, yeah, yeah. barrister. Yeah. Now, speaking of your wife, um, I think the two of you met at uh, the Diploma of Education. At, uh, it was UNSW, wasn't it? No, I was at UNSW. She okay, was at she, Sydney, but Sydney, only Sydney offered the, the Diploma of Education. Right, okay. And I think she said it was in a health class where you were building, learning to build latrines. I think. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> there was the risk of a... Rural appointment, shall we say? That's right. Where, yeah. where um, uh, improvisation could have been required. Yeah. yeah, and now you've you've mentioned at a previous point. I think this was in your speech for uh, Cola and ANU. Well, it was mainly ANU. Sorry, through Pacific Hydro with the scholarship. Yeah, and you spoke about how crucial she was in the decision making for the two of you to go overseas, particularly in Latin America. Yeah. Um, what has your wife imparted on you or taught you? Oh, goodness. It's a continuing process. <laughs> <laughs> We've been married 53 years now. And, uh, yeah, I guess she's, uh, again, been a – well, she's shared the adventure. We've had an adventurous life, a peripatetic life. Uh, we, we moved even more than my parents did. Uh, through my work in the oil industry. And she always willingly and indeed enthusiastically came along with me. And there were a lot of moves. Uh, none of them are convenient, uh, um, particularly when kids... Well, it's easier when kids are small, but you've got to be... We both studied early childhood development and we were concerned about the disruptive impact that that moving might have on small boys. We had three small boys. Anyway, she uh, she demonstrated to me how uh, successful you could be and how important it was to maintain a stable family setting around the the raising of children. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And she was, she was a teacher by choice uh, and by inclination. Still is. Yeah. I didn't teach for long, uh, but uh, to her it. Choosing a caring profession was a correct choice. She's a caring person. Yeah. Why is it so important? I've always wondered that. Why is it so important for, for young kids to have that stable place to be? Because, I mean, if you, if you think about it, like in 10,000 years ago, we would have been roaming around constantly moving as sure. hunter-gatherers. So I've always wondered that. Sure. Well, I think the... The immense transformation that happened with the with the industrial revolution when we separated our life's work from 
working with our hands and hunting and gathering specifically, and we became a divisionalised species. Uh, I think there the the challenges became uh, psychological and social rather than physical. And I think if you see a lot of this stuff that's coming out uh, about domestic violence uh, and all its uh, awful uh, consequences, a lot of it has to do with the mistreatment of children. A lot of the educational theory we learned in DepEd was written by people like Rousseau and others who were... terrible fathers, but (laughs) highly focused on the importance of early childhood development. You know, the Jesuits always said, give me a child to the age of seven and I'll have him for life. (laughs) Well, the Jesuits didn't have me, but the black St. Joseph nuns did. (laughs) (laughs) Same outcome. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, it's... um it makes a lot of sense when you phrase it like that. It's it's social and situated. I guess it's all relevant relative to what what is normal for society at that point. You know, mm. if your if your group, your tribe, is all about moving and roaming all the time, then mm. that's what's normal. Sure. Yeah. I think we see this here with the indigenous people here. That value of of culture and the remote whole remote communities thing yeah is is a rather a, a hopeful uh, effort at maintaining that connection with those traditions yeah i think it was very i mean we came along and they had their way which is more suited to a hunter gatherer so on that that had been like that for I don't know. How Six, long have they been here? 30,000 years? 60,000. 60,000 years. <laughs> oldest, oldest surviving civilization on Earth. Exactly. And so within 200 years, we expect them to be like our society, which has been like that for, I think, the the food, the agricultural revolution was r- maybe ten, five to 10,000 years 10, ago. 10,000 yeah. 10, years ago. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's definitely a tough one. Hmm. When again, when I was I was speaking to your wife, she spoke about your tenacity and hard work. I'm intrigued to hear about your first job at the Coles Variety Store with Michael Ruddick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, Mike, Mike Ruddick. I went to school with him at De La Salle College, Cronulla, and uh, okay. it was a small matriculation class. There were a dozen of us, and um, I played tennis near his house in Miranda in Sydney, which is where Scott Morrison's the current member, by the way, apropos of nothing. Anyway, um, I was looking for uh, casual employment and as it transpired, Mike's father was the manager of the coal store at Hurstville in New South Wales. And he got me a job as a storeman. Okay. Uh, And I worked under the store and uh, stacking shelves and unpacking lorries and, you know, uh, dismembering cartons and boxes and so on. And how old were you then? I was 14. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I'd had a few jobs before that. Let me tell you, (laughs) I started when I was 10, picking peas in Armidale. But um, I didn't like that. It didn't suit me. I didn't think this was quite pucker enough working in the storm because the young... uh, people upstairs wore collars and ties and the girls wore smart white blouses and black skirts and I thought I'd, I'd, I'd be better up there. You'd than, work your way up. And lo and behold, the storeman's nephew turned up and the storeman had no choice but to offer him a job, but he gave me a very good reference to Mr Rudwick, the manager of the store, and said, this bloke's a good worker and I suggest you keep him on and 
put him upstairs. Well, I said, <laughs> reluctantly, I accept this assignment. And, yeah. And I learned more about customer service at, behind the counter at Coles in Hurstville than I've ever learned since. And I've been preaching customer service for a long time. Yeah, that'll certainly break you in. I think uh, my first jobs were delivering medicine at the age of 12, I think. Yeah. Uh, maybe 11, 12. Um, uh, that was for my local pharmacy. And then really got into hospitality and that that'll teach you that'll yeah, that'll teach you to be not embarrassed about anything in the world <laughs> after you spill glasses of wine at people i, I agree um, that's right yeah it's uh it's one of those important skills i think great training interface with people it's the greatest training for business i think i think so i it's, think it, i'd second that it's quite intriguing now with the banking royal commission you know where we have here these quite uh, soulful statements from very senior executives uh, daily saying, well, we're, re we're really going to focus on customer service from here on. Well, why did they ever focus on anything else? Yeah. That's the question. Yeah, I've always, always wondered that. The, the banking system is an interesting one because it's a lot of these issues are created through the cheap money that's floating around with low interest rates, mm. which just exacerbates everything and it sort of incentivizes poor behavior i think yeah i couldn't agree more yeah, yeah. and uh this the the next i don't know how long this is going to go on for and having worked in the financial professional services industry mm. and being qualified in that area i think it's a real probably a shake-up that the industry really needs let's hope yeah <laughs> let's hope now i want to jump into your career so I mean, I've looked at so many profiles now, it's ridiculous. <laughs> the lists go on and on. I, I really struggled to seriously con concisely put this together. Um, so <laughs> what I did was I, I went through, um, as I said, you've had an extensive career. So I think your first choice was actually to work in medicine and second was to become an industrial chemist. So yeah. it was by a chance that... Uh, you switched to mining and resources because at the time you were traveling to and from work and you were complaining to your wife at the time that you weren't close enough to her and to, to your own home. I was also complaining about having to drive over the Sydney Harbour Bridge. Exactly. Every day, too. Yeah, 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 you're going from North Ride to somewhere way down south, right? Maroubra. Maroubra. Maroubra Beach. Jeez. Home of the Bra Boys. <laughs> And so you took up a job as an industrial chemist at the Shell yeah. Lab in, I think it was Gall Bay, Greenwich. Yeah, that's it. Um, that's it. Beautiful place, beautiful yeah, spot. Exactly. And then, some very large oil tanks between us and the sea, but uh, we liked oil tanks <laughs> <laughs> in those days. And from there, your career has really expanded exponentially. I mean, I'm just going to list out some of these. I'm not going to go through timelines for people because there's just there's so much there, but... We've got a career of 50 years across Shell Australia and Venezuela, Bass Strait Oil, Chairmanships of Pacific Hydro, Gribbles, Council of Australia, Latin American Relations, uh, Deputy Chairs at Transfield, Board Seats on Normandy Mining, Woodside and Caroon Gas. I'm sure that I've missed a few there, but mm -hmm. that's a lot. A lot of jobs. <laughs> a lot of jobs. I think I've had 50 jobs. Many of them were shell specific, shell related, shell yeah. related. But since then, I've been fortunate. Since shell, which is twenty years now, I've been fortunate in having those uh, listed public Australian companies. Yeah, which I always wanted to do. When I, I knew that when I retired from executive life, I'd, I'd like to be a company director. Okay, 
how how important was that in hindsight now that move to shell as a chemist it was uh well it was wonderful really they're great outfit shell I, I regard them very highly yeah um, I can see their beautiful building here from your window, <laughs> <laughs> number one, Spring Street. Um, and again, Helen found me that job. She found a tiny little two-line ad in exactly, the Sydney Morning yeah. Herald and said, Chemist wanted Greenwich. That's all it said. I had no idea who or what uh, it was, but she said, look, you could walk to work from here. We lived in Crow's Nest. And indeed I did for some years. Um, but... Uh, they were a terrific outfit, uh, Shell. They were a multinational then, as distinct from a global company, so they ran the business in each country. In its Australia. own autonomy. Yeah, yeah. very autonomous. Certainly a, a strong involvement of the shareholders in London and The Hague, but uh, we felt Australian. We behaved as Australians. Our chief executives were Australian uh, uh, most of the board of directors were Australian, the subsidiaries, you know, we behaved as Australians and as, we were encouraged to do so. Yeah. And then within that, um, they gave us all um, a go. We were given the opportunity to develop to, well, as the Peter, they would promote us to the limits of our potential. <laughs> and they did. <laughs> how, how did you make your way from... An industrial chemist mm. to essentially, were you, were you running Shell Venezuela? Yeah, I was the yeah. president. Yeah, yeah. president, and chief, chairman, it's, and chief executive. Officer. That's right. Yeah. So essentially, running Shell Venezuela, a subsidiary. Yeah. Yeah. It was like Shell Australia, not as big as Shell Australia. Of course. Yeah. But it uh, an interesting it was, market, then, nonetheless. Oh, it was fabulous. And when I joined Shell in 1965, the biggest Shell company in the world was then Shell Venezuela. Really? Mm. Uh, they. They were a founder member of OPEC uh, with Saudi Arabia, Venezuela. Uh, even today, they've got the world's largest share of proven oil reserves. So that's where big oil companies love to be, where the oil is, you know, <laughs> funnily enough. So um, the, the transition uh, from chemists to president of Shell, Venezuela, there, were, there were many steps in between. Um, the first one was into the lab, That's out of teaching into Shell. That was step number one. But step number two was I realised fairly quickly that the furthest I could go if I stuck with chemistry was as chief chemist for Shell Australia, mm. which was many steps removed from the chief executive's office. And uh, it was then very much a refining and marketing company. So I, uh, because of my personality, I chose to move into marketing rather than refining and that led to the steps various, various yeah. other things yeah yeah I, th I think um when i was speaking to your wife about your outgoing nature um she was just saying that controlling crowds at maroubra bay high school will definitely instill that in someone <laughs> yeah well it was a co-ed high co-ed high and uh, it had no man's land down between the boys and girls. That's at, right. Yes, you're saying that. At, at lunchtime. And um, one of my jobs was to patrol no man's land, you know. And uh, I used to run the assemblies uh, for, for the kids and they'd all come in and they'd all be young adolescents, you know. They're flaring with energy and enthusiasm <laughs> and hormones. Yeah. And, uh, 
and I could control them. I could. And yeah. um, it served me well very, very well ever since. I always said controlling 14-year-old kids at Maroubra was very good for training for boards of directors because the the attention span was about as long and the IQ level was about as high. <laughs> that would make sense. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I want to jump into Latin America soon, but I just yeah. want to continue with the, the mining business now. We spoke about this before. I was quite lucky when I was at Ibis World to work with large organizations in the mining field like BHP and Rio. Mm. Um, you mentioned before it was essentially the the shell company that you at was essentially essentially a refining and marketing business yeah. and that is really how these machines are oiled they are sure. one supply chain businesses and two marketing companies and the, the way that that works is that often supply is just purely mainly logistics mm. and then marketing is you know, large sum sales and moving large amounts of commodities, essentially. So they're the sort of primary functions. When someone comes to you and they say, look, Bernard, I want to understand the mining business, mm. how do you explain it to them? When I finished in my last year at university, I was went to Mount Isa okay. as a student. And I worked for several months in the lead smelter there. And they offered me a job. <clears throat> and um, But they also said, you should go back and do deep ed. There's no such thing as too much education. If, if there's another qualification you can take, do it. So I went back. And they offered me a job then at the end of deep ed. But by that time, I'd met Helen. And she didn't like the idea of Mount Isa too much. <laughs> so uh, I went teaching. Uh, but then, after I'd been with Shell for uh, 10 years, uh, and I was in London at the time, it was just after the first oil crisis, and Shell started to diversify into mining itself. So the refining and marketing company uh, started exploring for metals and coal and natural gas in Australia. And coincidentally, uh, I was general manager of the metals division and the coal division and the natural gas division uh, for in total about 20 years, I suppose. Right. So I was, um, I was able to meet my mining ambition inside an oil company, if you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They've sold out of those businesses now. They've gone back to oil. But they were very successful discovering and building mining and particularly coal mining projects over that time. So I was a miner. Uh, mining executive from within the oil business. It's a terrific industry. I mean, it's it's Australia's. I mean, this city, Melbourne's built on gold. Um, well, you can yeah, you can see that in the architecture. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Based and on the era. That's right. And the uh, you know the prospectivity of any country uh, quite simply varies in direct proportion to its area. Yeah. Canada, United States, Russia, South Africa, Australia, you know, we've got enormous mineral potential mm. subject to systematic scientific exploration. That's what our miners are good at, systematic scientific exploration. And once they've found it, they're even better at uh, developing it economically and on an extremely large scale. And then Australia in turn, with its very small population, is a very small consumer of anything very small consumer of everything. <laughs> so we've got surplus capacity to export. You know? Yeah. So uh, that's where we're... That's, and we're world leaders in just about iron ore, coal, 
bauxite, alumina, copper, lead, zinc, nickel, tin, uranium, rutile. Yeah, we've got a lot of we've got a lot of everything here. Yeah, yeah, lithium. Yeah, you know? yeah, lithium being the next big thing. The next big thing, yeah. and it looks like Australia is going to be the major resource holder of. Hard rock lithium. Has and, to, and sun. And sun, <laughs> sun and wind. Yeah. And, and um, you know, the capacity here for a nuclear industry is... Is huge as well. Huge. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's a very fascinating business. I think a lot of people... Um, look, at the end of the day, you need energy, right? You need sure. to put the lights on. Sure. And, yeah, I think there's a lot that can be done, obviously, with the way that... Um, you know, you've got all sorts of subsidies in the industry for uh, people who are driving diesel trucks, but also for um, companies that operate in the renewables area. I, f- mm. I feel like there could be, you know, at least looking at the industry at my time at IBIS, mm. there's a huge potential, particularly in Australia. Mm. Um, but it, it just taught me a, a lot about those businesses and how different they are to your classic corporate company. You know, they they really are scientific driven companies yeah. in supply, um, and how complex all of that is mm. as well. And and the Australians are really good at that that high end uh, service and analysis uh, yeah. part of it. You know, the equipment all comes in. We don't make anything here. We don't make caterpillar tractors. We don't make these huge haul trucks. We don't make drilling rigs. They all virtually all imported, but the mine planning, the uh, geological uh, systems development, uh, um, not to mention the accounting and the legal and all that. I mean, Melbourne is still, in my mind, a mining town. <laughs> they have a mining club in Melbourne, do you mind? I mean, it used to be the head, it's still the headquarters of BHP and uh, some of the headquarters of Rio are here. But... Um, all the operations, you know, Western Mining's gone, Broken Hill North is gone, Broken Hill South is gone, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But when the mining club has its monthly or bi-monthly lunch at the Melbourne Town Hall, it is chock-a-block. It's bulging at the seams and there are stockbrokers and accountants and lawyers and geologists and geophysicists and mining engineers and mine planners. And they all live here. They live in East Melbourne. <laughs> Who wouldn't? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's. Um, I, I'd second that. I remember when I first got into the whole stock market game, mining was uh, penny stocks, penny stock miners was uh oh yeah was my thing. <laughs> they were terrific they were terrific it's uh yeah. it's a fascinating area it'll t- teach you anything about a startup business that's for sure yeah um, and, because and they're it. literally selling nothing you know like they're they've got a uh resource area they've got mm. a prospective um plan you mm. know they believe that they have this amount of reserves they've that's got to right. prove it <laughs> then they've got to raise the money yeah then they've got to, yeah, yeah. They got to build something and then they've got to mine it. It's nuts. And the day they start mining is the day they start to run out. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. And they've got to, what do you do for an encore? What do you do when you, when, when the runs out? That's, that's the wonderful thing about renewable energy. Yeah. You know, when I work with Pacific Hydro, which was, uh, was and remains a wonderful uh, Australian renewable energy company, now owned by the Chinese, I might say. Is it? Yeah. This, this country's gutless when it comes to holding long term onto the right investments. Hmm? Yeah. Even in mining, even in mining, which is where we enjoy this fabulous natural advantage. Anyway, 
Geopolitically, we've made some bad decisions. Yeah. Um, for example, handing over the port of Darwin to a Chinese-owned company. Probably not a good Probably choice. Probably not the wisest choice, no. Um, and I think the, the Vanuatu thing that – I don't know if you read, read about yeah, I that did, recently. I, did, I read about that, yeah. That's, um, I think that movie put some people on edge. <laughs> if there any substance to it, I'd be on edge. <laughs> the, uh, the wonderful thing about Pacific Hydro was that it differed completely from any resource industry I'd ever worked in because oil, gas, coal, minerals – were all all had that characteristic. They were non-renewable resources. Once yeah. you started mining, you were you were putting yourself out of business. Whereas with uh, with wind and and solar and hydro, I mean it's it's forever. That was a, a point I had. You know, I looked at your background, thirty to forty years, I think, at the point point where you moved to Pacific Hydro mm. in the resources, mining, whatever you want to term, this big umbrella of fossil fuels. A lot of fossil and, fuels. And then you moved to renewables. Yeah. Why? They offered me a job. <laughs> <laughs> Mainly. Um, well, I was converted in the process. Uh, okay. You know, I, I can remember my first uh, discussion, serious discussions in Shell about global warming in 1989. Wow, okay. My boss at that time uh, happened to be a sceptic. And I wasn't. Uh, I was convinced then, and I remain convinced by the side. I don't listen to amateurs. Uh, you no. know, if I want heart surgery, I don't go and see the bloke down at the George Street Cafe. <laughs> Glad that you said that. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And the same with, uh, you know, I'm not a climate scientist, but I listen to them very carefully. So... Um, I recognised then uh, in 89 quite clearly that my whole career was de facto selling carbon dioxide. Mm -hmm. had been up to that point. So when, uh, I, when I was offered a job by Pacific Hydro, I jumped at it. And the reason they offered me a job, because I had been a chief executive in South America and they had substantial hydroelectricity investments Huge potential, in yeah. Chile. Yeah. And they needed somebody who knew something about Latin America, okay. and I knew a lot about Latin America. I want to jump into Latin America then because it, it seems to be a crucial component of your career. So from 96 to 99, you were president in Venezuela. Um, I think at the time your interest was initially sparked because you were at a conference in Colombia and you, yeah. the two of you, you and your wife had decided, oh, we'll just we'll go have a look because it was just next door, right? Yeah. We were sent there by Shell to have a look because <laughs> they knew that Helen wasn't too keen. Right. And and I was very nervous myself, you know. Yeah. It's a big, big decision. Back big then. decision. Yeah. And uh, I remember saying to Helen at the time, listen, if if we do take this, it, it could transform the rest of our lives. We were nearly 60 when we went there. And it has done. More so for me than for Helen. But... Um, uh, it it was just a, a wonderful experience. It was an exposure to a culture and a continent and a language. And uh, Venezuela is just a wonderful country. You know? Yeah, beautiful people. The gifts of the country are. We talked about Australia's gifts. Yeah. Yeah. Venezuela's got water like we've got deserts. You know, they've got the Caribbean beaches. You know, we've got Port Phillip Bay. <laughs> they've got the Andean Mountains. We've got Mount Hotham. They've got uh, they've got the Orinoco River. We've got the Arrow. You know, <laughs> I mean, they've got beautiful women. Uh, they have they win Miss World like we win cricket tests against the English. You know? Right. They expect to win all the time, and they do. You know, 
Uh, it's just got a lousy government. Yeah, it's, so how have you – that's where I was quite interested. I mean, mm. um, first of all, I want to understand, how did you view that market at the time? Because back in 96 to 99, I think – PVDSA, which is the the government-owned entity, yeah. which basically runs their economy, like they That's rely right. on that. It was a, a Hugo Chavez said always said it was a, a government within a government. Yeah, and so for for people who don't understand, maybe explain what the environment was like back then when you were in Venezuela. Well, when they co-founded OPEC uh, in 1976, they nationalised all the multinationals in Venezuela, including Shell, like the OPEC countries did everywhere, you know? And it was at that point that the oil companies all panicked and diversified into other things, particularly mining, like Shell Australia. That's Mm. why we diversified. We thought our access to upstream oil was going to be cut off forever. It wasn't. (laughs) But we thought that was the... Mining provided us with an opportunity of moving into businesses which could be big enough to replace the sheer scale of oil. Nothing has yet replaced the sheer scale of oil. We'll come back to that. But that went on from 76 till about 1990. And ironically, the same president, uh, Rafael Caldera, who had nationalised us in 1976, was re-elected as an old man, older than I am now, in 1990. And he was he was convinced by Pedavesa to have an, what is called an apertura, an opening, because Pedavesa recognised that they couldn't keep pace with the technological development or the financial requirements of their own industry without the input of the international industry, so we're invited back. Yeah, and they yeah. had to bring in uh, outsourced. We had to yeah. bring we had to bring in money and men and technology, and we did. Uh, by the time Helen and I arrived in Caracas, there were eighty international oil companies with offices in Caracas. So they came back like bees around the honeypot, for the reason of, that's where the oil is. That's where they will. All, Shell will never leave Venezuela. It's still. It's been renationalised now. Just after we left, we had three wonderful years there. Huh? We built a, our first oil uh, production platform in Lake Maracaibo. We discovered the oil in Mar- Lake Maracaibo in 1914. Shell. While I was there, we built a, a production platform in the lake. Uh, we had. A, a share of a coal mine with Peter Vesser in the same state, the state of Zulia. We built a lubricants plant at uh, Valencia. We reopened 150 service stations. We had an LNG project off the coast of the the uh, state of Paria. It was terrific. It really it was an apertura. Right? It was working brilliantly. And why, why did they reinvest? We spent a billion US dollars while I was there. Wow. On those projects. Anyway, in February of 1999, Hugo Chavez was elected. In July of 1999, Helen and I came home to Australia. And within five years, he'd renationalised a lot. Wow. Yeah. He, a very charismatic guy. I met him a few times. Was he? Yeah, he used to refer to me as Mi Amigo Bernardo. <laughs> <laughs> he was charismatic. He was, it's crazy. Uh, he, he crazy. Was, well, crazy. Can I, he was. Or was he fully aware as to what he was doing? Well, he was a, he was a, an acolyte, a, a student of uh, Fidel Castro, mm. and he believed in all that stuff. Eh? And uh, 
He, he believed it and he won that election yeah. in 1999 with a huge popular margin mm. and he'd come from nowhere the year before the election. He was a one-man band, he had no party, he was running around the back blocks at Venezuela on the back of a ute, talking, singing, reading from the Bible, quoting from Simon Bolivar. He was charismatic. And by the time the election came, he won 65% of the popular vote. So how did it start forming into a dictatorship? Uh, it's To me, the analogue is uh, Robert Mugabe in Zimbabwe. Remember how, yeah. how chuffed we were when Robert took over? And Robert just ground away at the foundations of democracy by changing the rules while in power, legitimately in power. He also kicked out all the people who could create the food in the country, oh. all the white farmers. That Zimbabwe, that, that, Zimbabwe yeah, yeah, that's that, right. That's and so right. there's sort of similarities in Venezuela and when you start kicking out all of the people who can do the things like refining the oil and discovering the oil and all the technology that they bring from outside. All, all that, yeah. all that. He, uh, mind you, Peter Vesa, the state company, shot itself in the foot. It, 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 it was anti-Chavez and it, it went on strike. Really? Went on strike. The National Oil Company went on strike. Well, Chavez, he had these, uh, he had the military on his side. He is a military guy, was a military guy. So he, uh, he confronted them and they blinked first. He sacked them all, hmm. top to bottom, uh, from the president and chief executive, uh, Louis Justy, who was a former Shell guy, uh, highly regarded and competent. Uh, international technical executive, fired him, fired his board of directors, fired his executive team, fired the supervisors, put in a whole bunch of military guys. Yeah, and they family did. members to run the show. They, yeah, and the the volume of oil which they, they produce and sell is virtually halved as a result, and yeah. the price is more than halved. So suddenly they're... They're reaping the the wind. Yeah, great pity. I don't I don't wish any harm on Venezuela. They're yeah. beautiful. They're wonderful people, and they don't deserve that. It's a very it's very sad. I mean, if, for people to understand the basics of the Venezuelan economy, essentially, the economy is run through Pedavesa. That is the like oil and mining and refining. That is everything. Yeah. And so when the oil price goes down, you're not putting out as much volume because you strip away at the company for political reasons. Yeah. You can't continue importing things, which is what you need, like meat and food and the, the little things that help your population survive. And then obviously, um, who, I've just blanked on the, the current president, but they had that recent election. Maduro, Nicolas Maduro. Maduro yeah. Now, he's, he's even more of a dictator than Chavez. He has continued to tighten the screws on yeah. the Supreme Court and on the Congress and on well, the re rewriting the Constitution, all that same stuff, I mean, that Mugabe did. Yeah. And uh, he just had an election last weekend and the, the, op right. the opposition is in total disarray still. The reason that Chavez won in 99 was A, his personal popularity, but B, the opposition was useless. They were totally... Really? Because the way... The way that people phrase the opposition over there is that they're prevented from from really doing anything because the the whole system, the voting system, is set up against them. That's certainly the case, but they they don't help themselves. Right. Okay. You know, they can't get their act together. They can't coordinate. They can't. You know, they spend half their time fighting between each other. Yeah. It's sad. I tell you, I heard the archbishop say this morning in his conversation. He said. Uh, 
there's there's a lot of disbelief in democracy in Australia amongst young people. Disaffection, you know, people are not as convinced that it's the optimal system. And as as Philip Freer said this morning, well, it mightn't be the best system, but it's certainly better than any other. Well, they all they need to go and do is read about the 20th century. I mean, I've, yeah. I'm a fanatic about World War Two and. Yeah everything that happened in that era because I just find it, it's just catastrophic. It's one of the most catastrophic eras in the world. Dreadful century. Um, you know, like Spanish flu and then two world wars. Uh, how right. many mi- millions, hundreds of millions of people died in that yeah. era? And not, it's, not to mention the Vietnam War and the Korean War and the, exactly. and the Afghan War. Just history. Go back and look at history and that'll tell you why democracy and the current systems we have, although people are frustrated with them, mm. they should be using those systems to further themselves yeah. as opposed to... For Australians, I think the the most telling example is Venezuela because it has all the gifts that we have, mm. the natural gifts, the resources and all those, the people and everything else and just shows you what a lousy government can do for you. Yeah. Such a pity. How do you view... The, the country now, what do you think will happen over the next few years? Uh, it's very difficult to see a way forward. Um, again, uh, there have been a number of attempts to uh, unseat uh, Chavez and his successor, um, not for some years now, not since the Peter Vesa strike, but um, uh, in one particular case they in fact uh, managed to convince uh, they... I assume means the CIA, I don't know, but I'd, a fair guess would be that the CIA engineered the arrest and export of Chavez uh, and by a group of generals, uh, another group of generals who said, what's happened? Uh, they were told he resigned and they said, well, we'd like to see the signed resignation, please, couldn't find it. So they went and got him and brought him back, wow. you know. But in the, while in his absence, a couple of right-wing guys jumped on microphones and said, we're going to reverse everything this man's done. And uh, again, his supporters closed ranks and their regime changed. Looked, looked what we now very much like, what we now call regime change. Yeah. Didn't, didn't work. I've always wondered... So I can't see a short-term turnaround, put it that way. I've always wondered... You mentioned the CIA before. Why Why isn't anyone, if people are so frustrated with what is happening, and I mean the US does this, they did it in Syria, um, again for uh, proxy reasons for moving a pipeline through the country. I've gotten into that in a whole previous episode, so we won't do that now. But why don't they fund any opposing groups? You've got all these strikes, all these protests that have become incredibly violent. Mm. Um, the US doesn't like Venezuela much. And vice versa. Yeah. At what, government level anyway. Why wouldn't, wouldn't it be in their best interest to do something? Well, the Americans have had a notorious uh, track record of doing that every time a government that they didn't like was elected in anywhere in the Latin South American continent uh, for 200 years. Yeah, and it didn't go well for them just notorious examples of that. And then having succeeded uh, in America's, by America's definition, succeeded time and time again. The, the fact is here that uh, the attempts made against Chavez and his successor have failed. And uh, 
I don't know that America's been highly preoccupied with other theatres. Yeah. And, um, I mean, theoretically, if they're desperately concerned about at, uh, Venezuela, they could stop buying their oil. Yeah. Try that for exercise. <laughs> Getting into Latin America as a whole, I mean, you've spoken about this is at the latter part of your career. It changed your career dramatically. It did. It did. Um, you went to that conference and that's how it sort of all rolled out with Venezuela. In 2012, you were actually awarded um, an Order of Australia membership for yeah. your service to Latin America relations. Yeah, and um, a business, and to the community. Exactly. And a professional association, so <laughs> not just Venezuela. What, what do you tell people about Latin America? Pretty much what I've told you. Uh, the years that I was chairman of Koala, the Council on Australia-Latin America Relations for the federal government... Uh, when Alexander Downer was foreign minister, uh, were the same years that I was chairman of Pacific Hydro, which had these uh, uh, renewables investments in Chile and, and Brazil. And I've always said that I learned the theory of Australia-Latin America relations from the federal government and Koala, and I learned the practice of Australia-Latin America commercial relationships as chairman of... Pacific Hydro, and they were highly, highly synergistic. I was there for nine years in both at the same time. And um, the purpose of Koala was to engage with corporate Australia so as to enhance political, economic and social relations with Latin America. Yeah? And that, that was an ongoing task, and I, I always felt we needed another thousand companies like Latin, like Pac Hydro, working not only because of their contribution to the renewable energy industry, but because of their contribution to Australia-Latin America relations. Yeah. Um, the synergies between Australia and Latin America aren't simple, because they produce the same stuff from the same ge geography and sell it to the same markets, namely China. That we do, yeah. So we compete in in trade. We compete. We compete in iron ore. We compete in beef and sugar, and lamb and wine and so on. But the capacity for uh, cross continental investment is it's enormous. Huge, yeah. Is enormous, particularly in mining, yeah. because the skills of mining are transferable uh, from continent to continent. And uh, indeed, there is the most successful Australian investors in Latin America are the miners, BHP, Rio, and uh, the most Vale is a big uh, Brazilian investor here. Yeah. JB Swift is a big invest Brazilian investment here. The third biggest source of international students now in universities oh, are yeah. uh, Brazilians. Yeah. Yeah. We've, I've noticed that now living in the city. Yeah, particularly uh, not just Brazilians, but a lot of different groups from Latin America. I remember playing yeah. um, at university indoor soccer and yeah. noticing how many how many Colombian teams there were. Mm. Massive amounts of Colombian students coming yeah. over to study. Lots of Mexicans. Yes. As you go up the continent, as you go up from Brazil up to Mexico, uh, the aspirations of the students tend to move up. The, the Brazilians tend to. Uh, come here to study English and surfing, <laughs> and the Mexicans tend to come here for postdoctoral studies. Yeah, that's right. The Colombians uh, are quite uh, strong too. Chileans, Chileans come here in considerable. Oh, yeah. 
It, and that's something uh, that we really pushed in uh, Koala was uh, we had an educational action group chaired by Margaret Gardner, the current uh, chair of Universities Australia. Yeah, it's when you said before about the crossover, we're competing with similar areas yeah. and similar markets, it makes a lot of sense. But yeah, it highlights to me now how similar the economies are because I think it was during the Great Depression the South American economies and the Australian economies were the hardest hit because yeah. they're commodity-driven yeah. industries. That's right. Um, so that makes a lot more sense now. I just never really mm. thought about it. Yeah, they. Uh, yeah, they they are commodity economies. They are, and uh, like the Brits in our case, the the uh, our colonial masters were initially interested in us as sources of raw material, the Spanish and the Portuguese even more so. Mm. And so there they, they had people to exploit as well. Here we 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 didn't exploit the people. We Well for a period there was, you know, we, you had uh, prisoners essentially. Yeah, yeah, but the indigenous people as they, well. They were treated even more severely. Yeah. They weren't exploited by making slaves of them. They were very nearly wiped out. Yeah, they were killed. I think uh, in Tasmania they had um, martial law. If you saw an Aboriginal person, you could shoot them on sight. Mm. Yeah, it's terrible stuff. Appalling. Um, when you were in Latin America, I think most of us Anglo-Saxons would commiserate on how tough it is picking up a Latin-derived language. <laughs> um, what were so, some of the more memorable language experiences for you uh, confusion stories anything uh, yeah we were tutored in their language shell insisted that helen and i both learn spanish and indeed helen made it the precondition she said i either learn the language or i'm not going you know and shell typically having agreed to spend us send us for uh, three months total immersion in spain uh they they made some suggestion towards the end that might, mightn't be convenient. We might just have to go straight there and said, Helen said, that's okay, I'm not going. <laughs> so we got our total immersion. And by the time, by the time we got there, we could, we could speak. It was a very good program. We had, uh, we had about a month in Malaga in, uh, on the Costa del Sol at a boot camp. And we had a month in Granada uh, at a total immersion school where we weren't allowed to speak English, even at recess. Wow. Uh, then we spent a fortnight in uh, in uh, Madrid, uh, just wandering around and making, finding our own way. And then we spent a week in Costa Rica uh, in uh, learning the the uh, South American accent. The only accent I will ever have in Spanish is Australian. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, anyway, we got there and. Um, in my first gig, uh, my successor was leaving and they deferred the Christmas party, uh, the farewell Christmas party in Maracaibo uh, to coincide with my arrival. So I had to get up and uh, make a speech to the 700 guests in Spanish, which I did, you know, and they understood me, I think. <laughs> they laughed at my joke anyway. Or they at least pre <laughs> pretended to. They did, they did. <laughs> but uh, we arrived in uh, in Spain to go to, and we caught a taxi to go down to the school in Malaga and um, Helen said to the taxi driver, he said, she said, yo soy caliente. She said, senora, never, never say that. That means I am very hot, 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 hot in the, uh, in the uh, 
in the sensual sense, you know. Wow. You say, you say yo tengo calor, I have heat. Totally different. You know? <laughs> <laughs> that was lesson number one. And uh, when we were in, living in Caracas, we had a muchacha, a girl who came in every day and looked after us. She was terrific. And uh, she and Helen were arguing about how long the bread would last. And uh, the girl said, look, senora, in, here in Caracas it only lasts for a couple of days. And Helen said, well, in my country we have preservatives in, in, in bread, preservativos. And she was very bemused by this because apparently preservatitos in Spanish, Spanish are uh, condoms. <laughs> and, condom bread, I like that. Con, con, condom preserved bread, and so on. There were a million examples. Yeah. Um, it's a big, a big challenge, uh, yeah. particularly as we, as I said, we were <clears throat> approaching middle age at the time. Yeah, well, it seems like you had a good uh, a good amount of time to get into it, at least. We did. It, yeah. made, it made all the difference, and it, it's the key to uh, that culture and that that uh, civilization is Spanish for half the continent and Portuguese for the other. Yeah. Um, thinking about the industry as a whole, who are the leaders you respect the most in mining and oil? Oh, in oil... Um, Certainly Exxon, you know. You mean people or companies or both? Pe- people, yeah. Oh, well, Lee Raymond, the the long-term uh, chair of uh, Exxon, was uh, an outstanding uh, engineer and uh, business executive. He was also a climate change sceptic, which I think I think in that in that capacity he did enormous damage to the the climate debate. Yeah, you know? and I think the industry generally did that. Uh, they fought. Uh, they're a tough mob. They're, they're, they employ a lot of analysts. Uh, they are very effective lobbyists, and um, <clears throat> they uh, they're tough mm. in their own interests, and they unashamedly pursue their own interests. The other bloke was Lord Brown in BP. He was he was a great guy. He was uh, he came to a sticky end in the finish, uh, unfortunately, but uh, not not through. Integrity. He was gay, and that was finally discovered to his then discredit. In in Shell, uh, Sir Peter Baxendall was a great uh, executive, a great chair. Here in Australia, uh, the Shell guys I regard very highly. Um, it was a succession of them. Sir Leslie Froggatt was an Englishman. Then Kevin Gosper, whom I worked with for ten years as chair of Shell Australia. Rick Charlton, his childhood friend from Newcastle, succeeded him as chair. And then um, Roland Williams, another Englishman, came in. I used to say, as they went from Sir Leslie to Kevin Gosper to Rick Charlton to Roland Williams, it was a bit like going from King George the Sixth to Camelot to Attila the Hun to Louis the <laughs> Fourteenth. Jesus. They had, very different, they had very different management styles. But they, oh, were, they, were, they, were, they were competent. They were good businessmen, you know. Yeah. And they were good diplomats as well. One of the big issues for Shell in those days was, as a multinational, is maintaining uh, good relationships with governments everywhere, and they did. We had a guy permanently, a series of guys, permanently stationed in, in Canberra. They had a residence in Mugaway, the residence, the Embassy Street. And uh, the, the job of the shell man in, in uh, Canberra was to keep 
ministers and prime ministers' doors open right. for us when we needed them, and they did. You mentioned before about the renewable component. I don't think I touched on that as yet. Obviously, your time at Pacific Hydro, yeah. heavy investment in that area, and they had investments in that area. What did you learn? I mean, obviously, you had you were convinced at that point, but what did you learn about the potential of renewables? Well, I thought it was enormous, and I, I maintain that view. What I recognised uh, was what I just spoke about, the opposition to anything uh, uh, like the renewable energy target. I mean, uh, the fossil fuel industry, including the oil industry, the coal industry and the gas industry, has been furiously uh, knocking uh, anything to do with renewable energy targets forever. I mean, we're up to what now, 25, 26%, uh, yeah. but it's been a, uh, a dogfight every inch of the way. Their lobbying power is immense. Mm. There's a wonderful book written about 10 years ago uh, in American uh, called Merchants of Doubt. And it, That's right. It draws analogies and parallels between the, uh, the uh, processes of the tobacco industry and comparing that with uh, the opposition to the scepticism about global warming. Well, the new, yeah, the new thing now is scepticism of renewable resources and also scepticism of data controls in new companies like Facebook and Google yeah, and so yeah, forth, which yeah, is very yeah. interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm a fanatic reader and I just bought all of um, Edward Bernays, who was the sort of father of propaganda. Right. He has three books on public relations and communications and stuff like that. It's very, very interesting. I mean, this is the man that convinced people that smoking was uh, a great and healthy habit. Uh, Camel. Camel was the cigarette that most doctors choose. Remember that one? <laughs> God, that is terrible. Um, before we jump into some short, fast questions, I've, I, I want to understand, in the, the mining and the oil game, what do you think is, or let, let's call it the energy game, what is never changing? The need for systematic scientific exploration. Okay. Like because that. you've got to replace those reserves. Yeah. You know? They don't last forever. They don't last forever, and they're harder and harder to find. Yeah. And the techniques that are used to find them, geophysical, geochemical, geological, are breathtakingly sophisticated in their complexity. It's just – I admire geologists and engineers uh, for what they're capable of doing. It's wonderful. Jumping into uh, short, fast questions, what does your morning look like? Oh, pretty good. Normally I get up. Uh, I get up at regular hours and I uh, go to bed at regular hours like Jordan Peterson advocates. <laughs> you know Jordan Peterson? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm reading his book at the moment. Aren't we all? <laughs> Isn't it great? He's really good. I, like I think it's great. Yeah. Yeah, I'm really enjoying that. Anyway, I get up. Um, I do my Tai Chi. Okay. I, I, do you uh, do that in the park? Or at oh, home. I do it in my front veranda. Oh, okay. <laughs> or back garden, as the case may be. I've got very private gardens, so I'm happy to report. Um, and then uh, I have breakfast, which okay. consists of porridge and, uh, and that's it, a cup of tea. Mm -hmm. Then I take my dog for a walk. Helen and I take the dog for a walk. What breed of dog? 12-year-old Labrador, very okay. charming. Her name is Scout. Scout. Scout, yeah, great dog. Very well known in East Melbourne. <laughs> And then we stop at the George Street Cafe for a coffee and we read the papers. Okay. We do the quiz. 
the quiz. Yeah, I like the quiz. Not Sudoku? Not Sudoku. <laughs> I have assumed over my long life I have uh, accumulated a vast amount of absolutely useless general knowledge. <laughs> this makes me very good at quizzes. <laughs> um, and what does your evening ritual look like? Uh, pretty, pretty, pretty routine. Again, uh, I don't like I. I have a, an office over the garage at home, so Helen and I have got our separate spaces, which has uh, been wonderful for preserving the fragile facade of domestic bliss. <laughs> and um, I, I normally finish at about six in the evening, uh, and then we watch the. Uh, we have tea while watching the SBS news, okay. and then we watch the ABC news, yeah. and then maybe watch a little telly, uh, maybe read and go to bed. At, I go to bed at 9.30. She goes to bed at 11. Oh, jeez. You're the sleeper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love sleep. Um, any particular TV shows that are your go-to? No, I'm not, not, I'm not up to speed with TV shows. I get a bit impatient with them. How did you come across Jordan Peterson? Ah, good question. There was an article. He, he visited here just yeah. a couple of months ago, and uh, there was an article about him in the in the Australian, I think. Must have been that. And yeah. it it just struck me uh, as being quite interesting. And they had his twelve rules of life, just which don't tell you much at all. You really no. got to read the chapter. The book is very good, and it's it's. I mean, I'm a a strong reader, but mm. it takes me about a chapter a night. It's, oh, it's, it's dense. Yeah, it's, it's very, very dense. dense. And he's a, he's a polymath, you know. Yeah. And he, he's – I'm glad I'm neither one of his fanatical fans or his fanatical <laughs> critics. I'm, I'm, I take him at face value. Yeah, it's taken with a grain. The fact so. that he is a clinical psychologist and, and but a, a very well-read man and a deep thinker it's quite an unusual combination, I think. It is. It's a very unusual combination. He, he, he puts his clinical advice into a very broad frame of reference. Yeah, I think I was speaking here with another guest. It's it's really self-help, but in, in a, a medical diagnostic way. He's very yeah. meticulous about the way that he instructs people to improve their lives and stop worrying about telling other people what to do with their lives. That's exactly And, and, and also, you know, I think this is a, a message that and why he struck a chord with my generation is that we were all told as we were growing up that we should expect certain things and I think that is the wrong approach. You should want to take on responsibility. I've always flourished taking on responsibility. Mm. You know, in I've been at companies where we're getting canned by some sort of review or we're getting pressure somewhere and mm. you sort of really rise to the occasion when you're being pressured into something and you've got responsibility and you want to take something on board. Yeah. But when you're sort of expecting things and, you know, you're not delaying gratification and you're just giving yourself what what you want, you become lazy and okay. you become boring. I agree with all of that yeah. and that's what Jordan says. Yeah, exactly. Just get on with it. <laughs> <laughs> um, best purchase under $200. Oh goodness gracious! There's there's a question. Uh, probably uh, three Charles Thurrett shirts, ninety nine bucks. <laughs> <laughs> do you get his Do you get his brochures? They turn no. up. No, oh, he's no. an English shirt shirt maker. Okay. If you like shirts, he's he's very good. At he's it. the one. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, what's been one of the most influential books on your life? Uh, probably Great Expectations by uh, Charles Dickens. Okay. Because I had great expectations when I was at Kurawata, <laughs> <laughs> and I've still got them, and they drove me all my life. 
And if you, know, you, I was I was highly motivated to uh, become more autonomous and independent. If you had to gift someone a book at Christmas each year, what would be that one book? Probably the Bible. Okay. Probably. Again, uh, coincidentally, it's it's what all the good stories are there, you know. And all so the much, old parables. Yeah, so much of our culture is well. I had a very religious upbringing, but. Uh, so much of our culture is based on stories and, uh, and as Peterson again uh, articulates, uh, they're, they're not to be uh, trivialised stories that have been around for thousands of years. They do have considerable uh, merit. Yeah, he, he's got a very interesting series on, I think it's the Bible. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, I mean, for me, I'm not a very religious person, but I think what he says and what I really enjoy is that these stories are stories that are told in different ways in many different societies and yeah. they're, they're universal, tr- not so much truths, but they're us- universal lessons that we've all learned growing up, you yeah. know, like not being mean to the person next to you and all these, right. all these little things, they're not unique to Christianity, they're in other religions, you know, he yeah. covers, in his book, it's really interesting, he covers, um, there's a lot of mirror mirroring to um, I can't remember what, what it's actually called, but the the ancient Egyptian religion. Yeah, I don't know what the right. actual name that's of it right. is. But it's very, uh, it's very thoughtful. Yeah, very thoughtful. And they are good stories, and I think we're with uh, our Western culture. It's been very successful. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, he, he places similar emphasis on taking evolution seriously and don't ignore that. Exactly. Uh, and uh, I think that's – I agree with him there too. Yeah. Um, what frustrates you that society is not able to find middle ground on, particularly global, in Australia? Global warming. Yeah. I think I mean, I'd second that. So many of my mates from the resources industry are sceptics. And Still, so many of the geologists and engineers whom I admire so highly are sceptics. Really? Mm. Um, it's a pity. It is a pity. If you, if, Last question for you. If you could have a billboard anywhere in Australia, mm. where would it be and what would it say? Goodness, it'd probably be on St Kilda Road, and it would probably say "Go Nuclear!" Exclamation mark. I like that. <laughs> it could be taken many different ways. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's what I'd say. Uh, any last requests for our audience? Any last requests or parting words? Not really, except uh, the the key to a long and happy life is turning up. Yeah. Who said that? Eighty percent of Success and life is turning up. And working hard. Yeah, persistence. I like that. There you go. Bernard, thank you so much. This has been a real pleasure. Thank you, Jordan. Cheers. That's Jordan too. (laughs) (laughs) Cheers. Cheers. Thank you for making it this far. Before you run off, we have a quick ask for you. Subscribe on your podcast app. Subscribing will give you priority access and help your fellow-minded listeners find Uncommon. Or you could also share with a friend. This will go a long way in building our audience, which will help us both get further guests on the show. Don't forget to like us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube by searching Neural, which is N-E-U-R-A-L-L-E. But until next time, thanks for listening. This podcast is brought to you by Neural Media. 
Neural Media was born to help you create effortless and affordable content for your business. When two listeners of the podcast reach out to us about creating content, we knew we had the opportunity to create something that could really help our audience. Our service will take away your stress of having to deal with freelancers, creating and managing their briefs, reviewing content creation, pushing distribution, and much, much more. This allows you to focus on teaching and building an audience over a long period of time, saving time and money with a quality service that doesn't gouge you like an agency. With Neural Media, you can go from idea to brief in under 15 minutes. Lauren and I will always aim to keep this content as free as possible. We spend countless hours creating each episode, researching, recording, and then editing, as well as many, many dollars invested in it. If you personally know someone in your network who could benefit from creating content for the business or work, send them our way to neural.com slash media. You can learn a little bit more about creating content and the benefits of it by listening to our How to Create Content series, which is available at the bottom of neural.com slash media. Listeners to this podcast can take advantage of our special 10% discount by using the promo code UNCOMMON in capitals.